We can hardly open our newspapers today without reading a story about homosexuality. Perhaps we might read a story about a judge somewhere that's made marriage among homosexuals legal. Perhaps we would read a story about a church or a denomination that has appointed a bishop who is actively and openly participating in homosexuality. Or perhaps we'll read about some denomination that is trying through their judicial system, a priest that has admitted to homosexuality. Whatever the case may be, almost every day we open our papers or get online or turn on the news, and there's a story about homosexuality. And of course, the great debate rages in our society right now about the issue of marriage between those who are homosexual. And the biggest fear that those in what we might call the Christian community have is that our society and our government would sanction marriage among homosexuals and make it legal and provide for it. The biggest shock among the Christian community is that we learn that there are some among the Christian community that think that's a good idea. And it's a rather amazing thing to those of us who believe that God has condemned the same gender sexual activity. And yet, this is an issue that is dividing not only the religious from the non-religious, but even those who are religious and claim to be Christian are becoming divided over this issue. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, what exactly does the Bible say about homosexuality? Amazingly enough, because of our shock, what we typically do is get a little bit heated, a little bit upset, and we start lobbing Bible verse grenades back and forth at others, and we make no headway. I've come to believe that the reason we most often make no headway on this issue is because the battle regarding this issue is not going to be fought and won based on particular Bible verses. In fact, what I have discovered is that the battle on this issue has already been fought and won for both sides before they ever even look at what the particular passages actually have to say. And so as we consider the issues of homosexuality, I think we need to back up and make sure that we're waging the proper battle in the proper place in order to convince people to repent of sin. And that's what we're going to do before we look at the particular verses that have anything to do with homosexuality. But before we even do that, one of the things that I would like to do today is to calm your fears regarding politics in our society. There are two things that I think that we need to remember as we look at our society and what is going on around us. Brethren, the first thing we need to remember is that we live in America, and America is a democracy. What that means is that you and I are allowed to have our opinions. And we are allowed to form our opinions upon any basis that we want. And nobody can take that away from us. At the same time, others are allowed their opinions. And they can base their opinions on anything that they want to. And what will happen is we're going to vote on it. And we'll either vote on the issue or we'll vote for candidates who might take the issue one way or the other. And when all is said and done, we might appeal the decision, we might try to overturn the decision, but in the end our society is going to speak, the votes are going to be cast, and there's very little that we can do about it except cast a vote if we choose. And that's it. 
But nobody is allowed to tell us that we can't take our Bibles with us to the voting booth. We're allowed to do that. This is a democracy. But here's the second thing that we need to recognize. And that is that America is not Christ's kingdom. We need to come to grips with the fact that Jesus did not come into the world to die in order to make us Americans. He came into this world and died in order to make us Christians. Brethren, I'll have you know I'm about as patriotic as you can get. I was not one of the ones that on September 12th went out and bought a flag to put out in front of my house because I already had one. I love my country. And I think the United States of America is one of the greatest countries, the greatest country, that has ever been on the face of the earth. But America is not Christ's kingdom. Jesus said in John chapter 18 and verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. And in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, He reminded us that our citizenship is in heaven. And with that in mind, these two principles in mind, we need to remember our duty. Our duty as Christians is not to bring the Bible to Washington. Our duty as Christians is to bring sinners to repentance. Our duty as Christians is not to take God's Word to the Senate or House floor, but to take God's Word, and as Psalm 119.11 says, hide it in the hearts of men. Sinners will not be saved by passing laws. Sinners will be saved by teaching them the Gospel. And brethren, we need to keep this in mind. That there are already numerous sins that our society legalizes and sanctions, and yet the Gospel continues to save people from those sins. Think about the Apostle Paul. He did not live in a democracy. He didn't cast a vote to see what the laws were going to be. And he did not have any, even the least amount of ability to say that he lived in a country that might remotely be built upon biblical principles. If he had tried to say that, he'd have been laughed out of town. And yet with Paul, the gospel still had effect and saved people. Even the enemies recognized this. In Acts 17 and verse 6, the enemies talked about those folks who have gone and turned the world upside down have come here. They recognized this. Brethren, our government legalizes alcohol, drinking, and drunkenness. But the gospel still saves people from that sin. Our government legalizes and sanctions covetousness. And yet the gospel still saves people from that sin. Our government has legalized adultery and fornication. And yet the gospel still saves people from that sin. And if our government legalizes and sanctions homosexuality, brethren, the gospel will still save people from that sin. And that's what we have to keep in mind no matter what happens. We sing a song, the kingdoms of earth pass away one by one. And it may be that someday because of lack of morality, America will fall. But God, God's kingdom will stand. And that is where our number one loyalty lies. And we have got to remember that. And so, no matter what happens, it's not the end of our world. Because we still have the Gospel, and the Gospel will still save souls until God ends the world. And we've got to keep that in mind, no matter what. Are you with me on that one? That's where we say, Amen. Alright, very good. Number two. 
One of the problems that we're dealing with, as I said earlier, is that the battle regarding this issue is fought and won long before folks ever get to looking at what particular passages in the Bible have to say. And the reason that happens is because there are a lot of misunderstandings when we start dealing with this issue before we ever get to this issue. In fact, there's three of them. Three misunderstandings. Number one, people misunderstand the Bible. And so when they start reading the verses that have to deal with this issue, they don't know how to deal with it. Number two, people misunderstand sin. And so because they misunderstand sin, they make all kinds of erroneous claims regarding the sin of homosexuality. And number three, people just don't understand the issue that we're dealing with. And so hopefully we'll clarify that. Let's start by trying to understand the Bible. Obviously, I cannot spend as just one small part of this sermon on homosexuality the time that it will take to tell you exactly how we got the Bible and all the reasons why we can trust the Bible. But I can share with you a few issues that impact our discussion regarding homosexuality and the Word of God. Look in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20 and 21, we find the first issue regarding the Word of God that needs to be understood. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The very first thing that we need to recognize is that this book did not come from men. I understand that men were the ones that put the pen on the paper, but they wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is God's Word, not man's Word. One of the most common things that you're going to hear today is, oh yes, but Paul didn't understand. Paul was ignorant of some things. Paul was limited by his culture and his biases. His biases. You know what? That may very well be true about Paul. Paul may have been ignorant. Paul may have been prejudiced. Paul may have had all kinds of problems, but the Holy Spirit that revealed this Word did not have those problems. He was not ignorant of the truth and realities of our world. He was not limited by the cultures of this world. And we need to remember when we go into this Word, Paul may have been the instrument that God used to write it, but his limitations and inabilities are not in this text. God's Word is in this text. And what God says, therefore, brethren, is true. What we find here. You can remember what Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 37. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 37. Paul said, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Flip over to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 11. Paul recorded there in Galatians 1 and verse 11, I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then also in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Paul said, By revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Paul said, I learned these things by revelation. Paul did not write these things, and Paul did not make these things up, and these were not just Paul's limited knowledge and biased opinion. This is God's Word. 
And so as we read it, we need to take it that way. Secondly, again from Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, we recognize that not only did this come from God, but when God used men to write these things down, they did not write down their own opinions. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, read it again. And we'll recognize, know this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. When Moses or Samuel or Isaiah or Matthew or Mark or Paul or Peter were moved by the Holy Spirit to write the Word of God, they were not writing their own personal interpretation of what God had revealed. They were writing what God wanted written. And therefore, brethren, when we go to this text, we are not allowed to take from it what we want and make it our own personal Word of God to mean what we want it to mean. We've got to read what God wanted it to mean and understand His will. This is not about our opinions. This is about God's Word. The third thing we need to recognize and understand about the Word of God comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All we need is Scripture. We don't need anything other than that to tell us what is right and what is wrong. God has provided us all we need in His Word that we may be equipped for every good work. And so if we can go to His Word and find equipping to commit homosexuality, that's fine. But if not, it's not a good work. And we are not allowed now, 2,000 years later, to to look at the scientific and psychological and sociological studies and go back and say, oh, that changes what God's Word means. Understand this, and don't misunderstand me. I certainly believe we should use reason and common sense and understand how the Word of God fits within reality. But real science and God's real Word will always coincide. And so we cannot say, oh, there's been this groundbreaking study, which, by the way, there really hasn't. We can't say, oh, there's been this groundbreaking study. That changes everything. We don't have to believe God's Word on this topic anymore. They were ignorant. doesn't work that way. All we need is God's Word. And we can understand right and wrong. We have to have these fundamental issues resolved before we ever even deal with this issue. Really, before we ever deal with any issue. But especially with this one. Because this is where the battle is fought and won. Understanding how God's Word impacts this issue. Number two, understanding sin. There's a real problem here. People don't seem to understand sin today. And so because of that, they're providing all kinds of justification for sin. The very first thing we need to understand is that sin is lawlessness. Look in 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, John wrote, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Sin means violating God's law. That's all it means. He has a will. He has a standard. And when we do something other than what He has said, we have sinned. The second thing we need to recognize is that sin is caused 
by personal desire. Look in James chapter 1. James chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. In James chapter 1, beginning at verse 13, James wrote, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Where does sin begin? Sin begins with our desire. The great battle for the Christian. What is it? It's the desires of the flesh warring against the desires of the Spirit. Look in the book of Romans in chapter 8. The book of Romans, chapter 8. Paul described this this great battle that we go through. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, Paul said, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are on the flesh cannot please God. Paul said some of the same things in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. This time we're going to begin in about verse 16. Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. Notice what Paul wrote there. He said, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Continuing in verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Do you see the battle? The great battle is the desires of the flesh versus the desires of the Spirit. And what's supposed to win out? The desires of the Spirit. We can read on in Galatians and find in chapter 6. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he'll also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We will reap what we sow. If we sow to the flesh, we'll have destruction. If we sow to the Spirit, we'll have life eternal. You may be asking, what on earth does this have to do with the discussion of homosexuality? I'll tell you what. The common defense today among those who are religious that support homosexuality and say that it's not a sin, is that, well, what we have discovered is that homosexuals are born that way. And they have this innate desire in their flesh 
And it's just not fair to tell them that they should turn away from it. Number one, despite what you have heard and I have read, I have seen the results of studies. We've got doctors and scientists that say they have a theory based on studying rats that it could be this way. And it's passed off as fact. Oh, we've discovered now what Paul didn't know. It's just not true. People have some theories that they can't prove. There's nothing that proves this. But what if there was? What if somewhere along the line it could be proven that, oh my, these folks are born with this desire attracted to someone of the same gender physically? So? You see, folks today who want to commit homosexuality, they want to make us believe that we're expecting something from them that we don't expect from anybody else, but that is just not true. We expect the same thing from the person who is tempted to commit homosexuality, who has a desire. We expect the same thing from them that we expect from everyone else. Subdue the passions of the flesh. Crucify them. And sow to the Spirit so that you may reap eternal life. It may be that a particular individual is having to deal with homosexual desire, whereas another may have to be dealing with drinking or covetousness, or outbursts of wrath, but it is the same thing. Crucify the passions of the flesh and so do the Spirit. And it does not matter how many studies we have that might prove that it's innate, or whether it's something that's inbred through genetics or something that we're raised into, it doesn't matter. Whatever the desire is, if it's of the flesh, we're supposed to crucify it and so do the Spirit. And we expect that from everyone, even you whatever temptations you're dealing with. But you see, today folks don't understand sin, and so they say, oh, hey, they're born with it. They've got a strong desire. So do we all. And we need to crucify our desires. The third thing that's not understood is the issue. You see, when you begin to talk about this with folks, especially with religious folks, you'll find out that They'll throw out all kinds of things and it just becomes apparent that some folks just don't understand what the real issue here is. Because you'll start talking to them about this and, and what they'll say is, well, look, I believe that, that God loves everybody and so we ought to love everybody. Well, I couldn't agree with that statement any more than I do. Obviously, God loves everybody and we ought to love everybody. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 describes the love of God. In Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 8, Paul wrote, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. God loves everybody, and He sent His Son to die for everybody, and we should love everybody. But brethren, that's not the issue. The issue is, is homosexuality a sin for which Jesus' death is the sacrifice and from which folks need to repent so that the blood can wash that sin away? That's the issue. The second thing you might hear folks say is, well, you know, I don't believe we're allowed to hate folks. And we shouldn't hate those who are homosexual. I couldn't agree with that statement anymore. 
We are not allowed to be prejudiced and hate people, even if they commit homosexuality, any more than we are allowed to hate anybody else with any other sin. The problem is that those who are pro-homosexual try to set up a false dilemma. That is an either-or situation. They say either you're going to accept homosexuality as lawful and godly, or you must be a tyrannical, homophobic bigot and hate monger. That's just not the truth. That's not the issue. The issue is not, should we hate homosexuals or not? Of course not. The issue is, should we, because we love them, teach them the gospel so that they'll repent of their sin of homosexuality? That's the issue. The third thing that you'll hear folks say is, well, I just don't think we're allowed to judge others. We shouldn't judge anyone. In fact, they'll go to Scripture for this one, and they'll turn you to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. That's what they'll tell us. You can't judge. But that's not the issue. Who among us is claiming to be the judge? Who among us is saying that we're going to hand out sentence of life and death? Who among us is saying that we hold the key to eternity? None of us. That's not the issue. None of us are going to do that. But what we do need to realize is that while we do are not the judge, and while in context Matthew 7 and verse 1 and 2 demonstrates we should not hypocritically and hypercritically judge folks, the Bible demonstrates that we absolutely must make judgments on all kinds of issues. John chapter 7 and verse 24. In John chapter 7 and verse 24, Jesus said, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. We have to make judgments. And further, let me ask you this. When somebody says that homosexuality is acceptable, are they not making a judgment as they judge that it's all right? Why are they allowed their judgments, but I am not allowed mine? You see, this is not the issue. Further, they'll tell us, well, I just don't think we can tell people who they're allowed to love. I don't think we should get involved in in the love life that people have. And if they want to love somebody of the same gender, well, I just don't think we can get in the way. It's not the issue. We're not telling people who they can love. Well, actually, we are telling people who they can love. In fact, we're telling you, you're supposed to love everybody. Remember what it says in Luke chapter 10? Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 27. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 27, the Pharisees said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, You've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Remember, though, the, the Pharisee, the lawyer, wanted to justify himself. Well, wait a minute, but who's my neighbor? And then he told the story of the Good Samaritan. You remember what the point of that is? Everybody. You're supposed to love everybody. And so that's what we tell, but the issue is not about who you love. The issue is about who are you allowed to have sexual activity with. That's the issue. It's not about love. And of course, one of the great problems of our day is that folks equate love and sex, and it's just not true. That's not the issue. Further, what you'll hear is, well, I just don't think we ought to be telling people who they can marry. I think we ought to leave that up to them. But brethren, that's not the issue either. Because the fact is, every single one of us believe that we are allowed to tell people who they can and cannot marry. Everyone in our nation believes that. What if the man was wanting to marry two sisters? Are we allowed to tell him no? 
What if he was wanting to marry your 12-year-old daughter? Are we allowed to tell him no? What if he wanted to marry his pet monkey? Are we allowed to tell him no? We absolutely are. And every single one of us believes it. This is not the issue. Our government has always and will always tell folks who they can and cannot marry. The issue is, are folks of the same gender allowed to marry one another or should we tell them no also? That's the only issue. And when it comes right down to it, we need to understand that the issue is ultimately, what is God's plan for sexual fulfillment? What has God said that we're allowed to do in order to fulfill our sexual desires? And so let's answer that question. What does the Bible really say? Understanding that it's the Word of God, knowing what sin is, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? What does it say about sexual fulfillment? The first thing we recognize is that marriage is God's plan for sexual fulfillment. Look in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, the Hebrew writer said, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. God has said marriage is the realm in which we can have our sexual desires fulfilled. Everything else is fornication and adultery. And whether or not you believe we're allowed to judge, this verse says God will judge. The second thing is that marriage is defined in the Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Beginning at verse 1, Paul wrote, Now concerning the things in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and one in an, and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it's good for them if they remain even as I, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn. With passion, the New American Standard points out. It's better to marry than to burn. Paul defined marriage. He said, let each man have his own wife, and let each wife, each woman have her own husband. You know, very interestingly, the words that are used here, the word for wife is the same Greek word for woman. The word for husband is the same Greek word for man. I think God, when he was describing marriage, understood one man, one woman. Certainly Paul said... And he explained in verse 26 that because of the present distress, that is, because of the persecution, it would be good if they didn't have those ties. But he also pointed out in verse 7, not everybody would have that gift to be able to deal with life that way. And so in order to avoid immorality, and in order to avoid burning with passion, get married. One man, one woman, 
But let me also point this out. It is to be for life. Look at Matthew 19. In Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing Him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. It's for life. Man's not supposed to separate what God has joined together. Let me explain to you why I came to this passage. You see, one of the number one things that's pointed out today is, oh, Edwin, that's just not fair. You see, Edwin, you as a heterosexual, if you want sexual fulfillment, you get to go marry a woman that you want to marry. But, if, but you know, if I'm a homosexual, I just you're telling me that I either have to marry a woman or I just have to be celibate. Oh, that's awful. That's not fair. I mean, this is very interesting because I want you to notice how the disciples responded to Jesus' teaching on marriage here. See, Jesus said, you get married and you stay married for life. Divorce is unlawful. It's a sin. And the disciples responded in verse 10, wait a minute. If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. They said, Lord, this isn't fair. You're telling me that if I'm going to marry, I've got to be married to the same woman for the rest of my life? Notice Jesus' response, verse 11. Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. Four, there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He is able to accept this. Let him accept it. You see what he's telling these folks who say, I'm not sure I want to be married to the same woman for life. Jesus said, well, it's either that or be celibate. You don't like the kingdom law? then you learn to control yourself. And he uses very strong language saying, make yourself a eunuch. I personally believe he's using that accommodatively to demonstrate what a difficult choice this is. But even if he's not, take a look at what he says. You either submit to the kingdom law, you marry one woman or one man for life, or maintain your celibacy. And he says that to everybody, not just to homosexuals. So if you don't like my law on marriage, stay celibate. We all have to submit to that. And if he would say that to men who didn't think they wanted to have sex with the same woman for the rest of their lives, how much more would he say that to men who didn't want to have sex with women at all? That's the key. Marriage is for life. But the Bible also specifically condemns homosexuality. Romans chapter 1, beginning... We'll start at verse 22. Romans chapter 1, verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. 
Now, the scholars today will tell us, oh, but see what we've got to do. You've got to keep this in its cultural context. You see, Paul did not know that some people were born homosexual. All that Paul knew was men and women born heterosexual committing homosexual acts. All that Paul knew was temple prostitution which included homosexuality. All that Paul knew was abusive homosexuality. I must say that I'm very pleased that we have these modern scholars that can tell us what Paul knew and didn't know. And I wonder how many conversations they've had with Paul to know what he knew and did not know. Because when I read this text, I don't find any caveats. I don't find him saying it's unnatural, it's indecent unless they're committed and love one another. I don't find him saying as long as it's not in the temple prostitution, it's okay. He doesn't mention that. He just provides a blanket statement that when men burn their desire with men and women with men, women, it is unnatural, it is shameful, it is unlawful. Whether it's with temple prostitution, whether it's abusive, and no matter how you're born, it's unlawful, it's shameful. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Beginning in verse 9, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You can't get much plainer than this verse. But I understand, and let's go ahead and read 1 Timothy also. Chapter 1. Before I forget about that verse, 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 9, 1 Timothy 1, 9, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I mean, you can't get much more plain than that. Now, I understand what the scholars will do with this. First of all, they'll go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and that word where some of the translations, the New American Standard says effeminate. The King James, I believe, says... Um, King James also says effeminate. Try and remember what the different translations say. New King James there says homosexual. And they'll say, oh, now see, that's a bad translation. And it may well be a bad translation for that particular word, but that's not the one we're talking about. We're talking about the word here where the New American Standard translates it homosexual. The New King James translates it sodomite, and the King James translates it either abuser of themselves with mankind or defilers of themselves with mankind. Now, what the scholars will try to do is they'll try to hone in on the, the verses that use the term homosexual, and they say, oh, now, we didn't even have that word in our language till the 40s. Or they'll hone in on the translations that use the word sodomite, and they say, well, now, we're not really sure that the history of that word is just. I don't know that we can go back to Sodom and say there were homosexuals there. We're not even going to argue that point right now. Because the fact is, whether the etymology or the translation of that word is sound, the word that's there means exactly what we think it means. The Greek word is arsenokoites. It's a compound word from the word aren, which means male, and coitus, 
which means couch, bed, or by implication, cohabitation. In fact, we have a word in the English language, coitus, which means sex. This word says male sex. I mean, can we get any more plain than that? So whether the translations are good words, whether the etymologies of the English words are sound or not, it doesn't matter. That word is talking about men having sex with other men. And Paul in both places says it's wrong. They will not inherit the kingdom of righteousness. You can't get around it. God condemns it. This is God's plan. What is the Bible saying? The Bible says it's wrong. I recognize that today's lesson has dealt with touchy subjects. We've used terms that probably you don't like hearing from the pulpit. And I apologize for that. But let's face it, we live in a world where we've got to deal with these things. Otherwise, even folks in the church aren't going to know the truth on these matters. We need to understand that the Bible demonstrates that we're allowed to be married. One man, one woman for life. And that same gender sexual activity is sinful and is wrong. And no matter what our government says and no matter what goes on around us, we cannot condone it and accept it as lawful in God's eyes. Are we allowed to hate folks that commit this sin? Absolutely not. We're supposed to love them. And by loving them, take the gospel to them. And brethren, despite how much it upsets folks to hear it today, The Bible demonstrates that the gospel can save people from the sin of homosexuality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, you remember it said that the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God, neither homosexuals. Verse 11 says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. The gospel can save people from every sin and help them turn away from it. That's our job.